this morning, we're going to finish up on finances and, I think, very practical aspects of it. One of the things that makes it difficult to be able to give as your heart may even desire to give is that uh, you get sometimes in a financial hole and you're not sure how to get out of it. So this morning we're going to talk about biblical principles, very practical things, uh, commands, principles of Scripture, of how to deal with your finances. So you can put your financial house in order and live according to God's priorities rather than in the priorities of the marketplace. One of the best classes I ever had in college was on marketing. I had to spend a little more time while I was waiting to transfer to university. So I said, I'll take this. I'll take this marketing class. It is, was wonderful because it prepared me to say no to all the marketers. I knew what they were after. I knew how they were trying to get my money and all their sly things. And you know what? They're very effective, though. You are either going to decide beforehand how you use your money or there'll be some marketer who knows how to push the right buttons and they'll get it from you. We want to set God's priorities rather than the marketer's priorities in your life. That's what we're talking about. Now, it's very easy to succumb to consumer credit and end up with a financial disaster. The ramifications are much more than financial. I mentioned this some weeks ago, but in 85% of divorces, money has something to do with the reason for it. Finances destroy lives when they're not used properly. Well, the first couple of principles we're going to look at are really kind of a review of things we've talked about already. But they're important to keep in mind if we're going to get our financial house in order in order to accomplish things that the Lord would put on our heart and actually we'd like to accomplish. The first one is this. God owns it all and you are a steward. You are a manager. You are an administrator. You are a caretaker. And we learn this from the parable of the talents back in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. And we went through that, took a, a whole sermon on that. But more of the point are verses such as Psalm 24, verse 1, which says this. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So who do you belong to? The Lord. And all the stuff you say you possess, who does it belong to? The Lord. Psalm 89.11 adds to that. The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine, the world and all it contains, thou hast founded them. So the Lord owns it and you are a steward. And stewards have responsibilities, not rights. And God's desire is simply that we are faithful stewards for him. He will take care of the measure of quote-unquote success. 1 Corinthians 4, 2 tells us that moreover it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. That's really the measure of success. Are you faithful? That's all he's looking for. Faithfulness. And we saw that in the parable of the talents. Were they faithful with what God had entrusted them? The two that were, were blessed. And the one that wasn't, had what he had removed. So it's incumbent upon us then to seriously follow what God says we are to do with what he has entrusted to our care. Everything you have is for your use only temporarily. Your current possessions, whatever they are, are either going to be passed down to somebody else or they're going to be destroyed, they're going to rust away and they're going to return to the elements of the earth. That's it. You're not taking anything with you. You only have them temporarily. So you don't own it. God owns it. One day you give an account to him for everything he has entrusted to you the few short years of your life here on this earth. 
Okay? God owns it all. You are a steward. That's the first point. The second point is another reminder of something we've already talked about. That money, or I should say the use of money, is a reflection of your heart. Matthew 6.21 says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's a very poignant statement by our Lord, isn't it? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. He goes on in verse 24 and adds this, No one can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or he'll hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon, an old English word referring to materialism. You can't love both. You are never going to handle anything less significant than money nor anything more revealing of your heart. So your use of money is a reflection of your heart. So the focus of our attention then must be on the Lord Jesus Christ and not on what the world offers. Remember, we also talked about 1 John 2, 15 through 17, the warning the apostle gives there. Do not love the world, neither the things in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away, and it's lust thereof. But the promise at the end is a good one, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So where would you put your finances? In something that's going to pass away? Or in eternal things that isn't going to pass away? Where is your heart? Now, trying to gain a sense of success from what the world has to offer is always fleeting. It never satisfies, and we talk about that in depth as well. It's sort of like those Christmas toys you give to your kids. December 26th, most of them are broken, and there's no satisfaction left, right? And by the first of the year, nothing's satisfying. They're bored with the gifts that you gave them on Christmas Day, right? And so we are as adults as well. You save up, you finally get that nice, brand new, shiny car and all the things, and within a month, you're just, yeah, okay, and... You know, within a year, you don't even bother to wash it. But boy, it was important at the beginning. That's just the way material things are. And God has warned us about that. We are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. But as we do so, we also then incur his blessing and his promise. Because he says if we do that, he will add all these things, the things we need for life, to us. God wants our attention on him, not the stuff of the world. He'll take care of that stuff. Put your focus on him. He provides for your needs. Now, that means we have to define success properly. For the Christian, success is defined as first loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Matthew 22, 37. That's the first and great commandment. If you are accomplishing that, you are successful. The second is similar. It's becoming like Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 29. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, There are so many other scriptures that deal with the fact that what God wants is for us to become holy, godly reflections of Jesus Christ. That's what we're after. That is success. When someone says, I see Christ in you, whether they mean it as a compliment or they're cursing you out, you Christian, you holy roller, you whatever they're, they're saying, that is success. When they see Christ living in you, success is also defined as serving God and others. Jesus Christ did not come to be served, to be to serve and give his life a ransom for all, Mark 10:45. And the second commandment is like to the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are things that define success, but that's not how generally the world defines it, is it? It's all about stuff. Stuff that's going to rot, rust, be stolen, 
or given to some fool that doesn't know what to do with it after you pass away. That's what happens to it. What is really success for you? Next, giving reflects your relationship with God. It's a corollary to the previous principle. But this is the first area of practical demonstration on your part of both your love for and your trust of God. Both are part of it. How much do you love him and how much do you trust him to fulfill the things he has already promised? Do you really believe that as you seek first his kingdom and righteousness, he's going to provide for you or not? This is where it becomes very practical. Now, we've had two sermons on the topic of godly giving, and the bottom line of both of them comes down to this. God desires that you give what you want with a joyful heart as a reflection of your love and trust of him. That's how he wants us to give in the New Testament. There is no command in the New Testament of you give a certain percentage of anything. Now, certainly there's godly examples of giving that range from 10% to 100%. So you're, anywhere in between is probably really good. But there is no set percentage. It is simply a reflection of your own heart, your love and trust for the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5 through 10 puts it this way. And some of you have memorized this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats will overflow with new wine. You must trust him to fulfill his promises. And that means following the proverb. Are you really trusting him? Will he provide for you? Yes, he will. But do you trust him to do so? You must also love God and want to be involved with his work. Remember when we were talking about giving, what was last week and actually mentioned the week before, Paul talked about the Macedonians and how they were giving for the, uh, the relief ministry. He was taking down all this money to Jerusalem because some of them were in very bad shape down there. And these Macedonians, he said, were begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. He goes on and says, they gave beyond their means. So here are people who are fairly poor begging Paul, please take our money. And Paul is probably saying, you don't have any, you need to keep it yourself. He says, no, we want to do this. That reflected their heart. And so when he's writing the Corinthians, he's commending them for their love of God that overflowed in the sacrificial giving for his work. We also saw that God does not impose, again, any sort of tax on Christians. The emphasis here is you give freely not grudgingly, not of necessity, because God loves a cheerful giver. And remember the word cheerful? We get our word hilarious from it. That's how he wants us to give. Now we get into some new material. The first one may not be one you like, but it's one it is incumbent upon us as Christians. Christians pay their taxes. Ouch. Now I'm sure there are many sad faces. I know my face is sad when I write out my check to the IRS and mail it in. I have yet to be happy about it, other than the fact that actually I had money to send in. That's better than not having money and getting in a, in a worse position. But it doesn't make me happy to send money in to the IRS. I don't think anyone smiles when they get their paycheck and they look at the amount of money that's already been deducted and sent to the IRS. Right? You just look at, 
wow, look at they took this amount, and I'm so thrilled they're taking this much away from my paycheck. No, nobody smiles about that one. I'm sure there are a few smiles that creep on you when you get a refund check until you sit down and start remembering, wait a minute, that's what they already took out of my check previously, and they've been holding on to it for however many months or a year or so, and they haven't paid me a dime in interest. And then you go, man, this is not very good, is it? All right? We're not thrilled about paying taxes. Okay? The only people I know that are glad about taxes are those that make their living on taxes because they're glad to get a paycheck. Okay? For that, it's good. But God doesn't say we have to be happy about paying taxes, does he? It's a different principle. When we give to him, we need to do it cheerfully. When we pay the government, it's okay if you're sad. You still have to pay it. Jesus was questioned on this very issue. Matthew 22, 16 through 21. He was asked about it. Actually, they were trying to trick him because if they could make him state some kind of favorable thing towards taxes, they know the people might turn against him. And you remember what Jesus said? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Cut right to the heart of the issue, didn't he? Paul also gives direction on this in Romans 13, 7 when he tells us to render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Paying our taxes means we pay the full amount we owe. A lot of men, including Christians, often think it must be okay to cheat on taxes because the government spends it unwisely and they can spend it better. It's not what it says. When Paul wrote what he was saying, he was talking about Caesar himself. He didn't spend money wisely. We pay our full amount. Because we're Christians, we live according to God's standards, not the world's. I remember some years ago, the man who figures my taxes out for me, and he does it as a personal ministry, he he wrote to me and said that uh, I had to fill out another form and pay a penalty because I had not given enough on my quarterlies. I pay quarterly. There's nothing taken out. I've got to write the whole check out. Well, the estimate wasn't enough, so I had to pay a penalty. And you know what? I wasn't really thrilled about that. In fact, I could probably make a pretty good case why it was unjust, unrighteous, and probably illegal for them to charge me a penalty on something that's really actually going to do once a year. But, as a Christian, I have a different standard of hold. And so I figured it out, sent in the penalty with uh, everything else. Now, certainly we should take advantage of legal deductions, anything we can. That's simply good stewardship. But we don't inflate or deflate figures to our advantage. We pay our full amount of tax, whatever it is right. We don't want to end up in fraud because that is sin. And Proverbs 13.11 warns us that wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers it by labor increases it. You don't gain by defrauding anybody. My position, your position as being representatives of Jesus Christ is more important than any amount of money we might keep for ourselves by trying to beat the tax code. Okay? As Christians... We pay our taxes. Next, a very simple principle. One, we should all know that debt is unwise. Okay? Debt is unwise. In fact, the scriptures give stern warning about debt, and yet it's a major problem for both our nation and for us as individuals. Some weeks ago, I talked uh, with a lot of detail about this, but a little bit of review here. The national debt is now over $8 trillion. That's just shy of $28,000 for every man woman and child in the country. That's a lot of debt. 
At the repayment rate of $1 million per day, it will take 22,000 years to pay back the debt. If we can get them to pay it back at the rate of $1 billion per day, it will still take 22 years. As Ron Blue, a financial consultant, has said, someone must pay this debt through a literal repayment, future tax, a deceitful repayment, future inflation, or cancellation, which is political upheaval. There are no other alternatives. The debt simply does not just disappear. Debt is important in our nation. But there's also individual consumer debt. It's also escalated to unbelievable heights. Excluding such things as mortgages and auto loans, credit card debt alone has now topped $800 billion. That averages to $8,000 per credit card. And since only about 40% of the people who have credit cards pay them off monthly, that means banks and other lending institutions are making lots of money on this. In fact, it works out in 2004, it worked out to $208 million per day that they were making. That's why you get all those credit card applications. Sears and Roebuck, they have made more on its charge cards than on retail sales for several decades. Now, what does the Bible say about debt? Well, first thing to understand, the Bible doesn't say that debt is sin. It just discourages it because of its ramifications. There's a proper debt, a way to handle it, and there's improper debt. The question is, is how you handle it. Now, the first consequence for us as Christians is this. We must repay our debts. That isn't the kind of mindset that is in a lot of people in our nation anymore. They don't think they have to. But as Christians, we repay our debts. Psalm 37:21 says this. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. We go beyond paying back. If you don't pay back your debts, what does that make you? Someone who's wicked. So if that's true, then we need to be extra careful about taking out loans, shouldn't we? Because we're going to have to pay it back. Proverbs 22, 26 adds this. Do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become sureties for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take the bed out from under you? Okay, they repossess everything. Think about it. What a difference it would be if people actually would pay back their debts, honor their commitments. Because bankruptcy has become a very easy way out for too many people. And bankruptcy on one person's part can throw other people into bankruptcy because what they were counting on, because a debt was owed to them, isn't there and they're out of resources. Pretty soon it escalates. The only time the Christian should go into bankruptcy is when they are forced to do so by a creditor. And a creditor can force you into it. But even then, for the sake of righteousness, even if you're forced into bankruptcy, you still repay the debt. Why? It's a matter of righteousness versus wickedness. Now, let me give you four additional dangers of debt and why it's unwise. First, the interest works against you. The price you actually pay for an item, it just escalates very rapidly. And I'll just give you a couple figures here, and you can quickly calculate in your own mind what it might be for what you have to uh, deal with. If you have a 15-year, $100,000 mortgage at 6% APR, compounded monthly, your actual cost isn't 100000 it's $151,895. The cost alone to you is $51,895. Okay, if you have a $200,000, you can double that, whatever you want. 
If it's a 25-year loan at the same rate, it will cost you $193,290, almost double, in order to borrow that money. Now, if the rate goes up to just 7%, the totals are $161,790 and $212,034, respectively. 1% makes a big difference, and that's why I'm using the analogy. It's huge, isn't it? That's why some of you have refinanced your homes because you're trying to get it down when the rates were down, right? And now you don't want to refinance because I know the rates are going up. You want the lowest rate possible because interest compounds rapidly and it costs you a lot. Now let's go to something like a car loan. Car loans are generally more expensive than mortgage rates. A $20,000 car loan at 9% over three years uh, actually ends up costing $22,895. So over three years, you pay just shy of $3,000 uh, just for the use of that money. If it's over a five-year period, it's 24910 just shy of $5,000 for using that money. Well, that's almost a fourth of the value, just to use their money to buy the car. Now, credit card debt's even more interesting because the, the average would be $8,000 per credit card. And uh, you know if you don't pay it all off, you are charged interest immediately on whatever you put on that card, period. So if you're like 60% of people and carrying that balance each month and paying the minimum, you will be paying interest on everything you buy. All right? Now, if you have a, a decent rate, let's say 8% on your card, and you're carrying this $8,000 rolling credit debt, it costs you an extra $351 per year in interest just to have it. That's $351 that just bye-bye because you didn't pay it off. Now, if you have that amount on a store card, and they can have rates of 16% or more, it could cost you $710 per year just to keep that rolling balance. Now, that's $710 that could have been used to pay off principal or buy something useful, but it's just bye-bye. Now, do you have all these extra funds to pay for principal, interest, and the product you're after? Because that's what happens. Interest works against you. Second, because interest works against you, debt becomes a trap. It's extremely difficult to have enough money to live on and pay interest and pay down the principal. And since most people get into that trap because they're already living beyond their means, they don't cut back even below their means in order to pay back the debt. They try and maintain where they are, so they still accumulate more and more debt. And now you're in a trap and the hole gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Debt is a trap. Third, debt mortgages the future. Proverbs 22.7 comments, The rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. What could have been savings, what could have been discretionary income is paid out on in interest. So all the money for future investments, future purchases, it's gone. You become a slave to it and your creditors. Really the point of Proverbs is the rich rule over the poor because the poor become indebted to the rich when they borrow from them. Now, if we define slavery as working for another without being paid wages, consider how many hours a week you must work to pay wages on interest, which you get nothing for. Okay? For that amount of time, by this definition, you're a slave. Okay? You are a slave. You are working and getting nothing back. It's just being paid out. The Research Institute of America reports the average American family pays one quarter of its spendable income on debt. On debt. Next, debt 
affects your spiritual life. That is usually symptomatic of other problems, including things such as greed, self-indulgence, impatience, fear, lack of self-discipline, and we could go on. Credit card debt, consumer debt, they're often and often even a high mortgage debt, frequently arise because a person is simply seeking after things in the world. How'd you get there? Well, you want what, you know, neighbor Jones has. So you've got to go get it too, but you couldn't afford it. Well, neither could he. And pretty soon you're all in debt. Okay? It's this desire to gain. And we've talked about this previously. It's not stuff that Christians should be pursuing. Jesus put it well in Matthew 6.32, that those are the kinds of things the Gentiles seek. The ungodly seek that stuff, not us. He added in Luke 12, 15, the warning, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has abundance does his life consist of his possessions. I sure hope your life is a lot more than whatever you own. Because if you're defining your life by what you own, you have a very, very shallow life. Business debt and investment debt can also be problems when they're pursued in get-rich-quick schemes because it's faster to borrow than to save. Proverbs 21.5 tells the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. Think wisely before you make, take action. Let me give you five very practical questions to ask yourself before you take out a loan, before you borrow something. The first one, it would seem simple, but people don't often ask it, is does it even make economic sense? A lot of people borrow stuff and it doesn't make any kind of economic sense at all, and yet they're just going out and doing it. There are loans you can take out, for example, which you will never pay back because the rate they charge you is just for the interest. And if you never pay back the principal, guess what you will always be paying? Interest. So you borrow $3,000, $5,000, and for the rest of your life, you pay interest on that. That doesn't even make economic sense in, in, in any way. But people do it. doesn't make economic sense. Second, do my spouse and I have unity about taking on this debt? We'll talk a little bit more about this a little later. But, you know, there is a reason God has given you a spouse. And it's part of this because, you know what, you're not as bright as you think you are. And she or he may have an insight you don't have, and you better pay attention, okay? Third, do I have spiritual peace of mind? And by that, I'm also referring to, do you bother to even pray about it? Have you sought God's will on this, or is this something you're just quickly manipulating to say God wants it because you really want it, and you're manipulating him? Are you really seeking the Lord's will in this? Do you have spiritual peace of mind? Fourth, here's a good question. What goals, values am I meeting with this debt that can be met in no other way? What is compelling me to take this loan? Is there a different way to, to do this? Okay? Fifth, have you sought godly counsel about it? Have you bothered to talk it over with someone? It's amazing how often if you just do that simple thing, you'll find that God can meet your meet a whole different way. You go and talk to someone and say, you know, this is broken, I need to fix it, I don't have the money, I don't have to get a loan for it. And they go, oh, wait a minute, I got one of those. Here. And God meets your needs. Or they will say, wait, I know somebody, or I know who can fix it, or, or something. God knows how to do all those things, doesn't he? But so often, we don't even bother to talk about it. We just go out and take action. Five simple questions. Ask those before you take out a loan. Now, if debt is unwise, then the corollary is that investing is wise. We would all agree with that, right? Investing is better than getting in debt. 
right? How many of you really want to have debt? How many of you really want to have investments? Ah, investments are good. We understand that. You know, the parable of the talents we talked about several weeks ago demonstrates the Lord's approval of investing because each of the good stewards invested what had been entrusted to them to gain a profit. They were investing. Now, what is an investment? Now, financially speaking, an investment is the money that we commit to some use for the purpose of gaining a financial return. We're looking for a profit from it. And there are many types of investments. There's commodities and real estate and precious metals and stocks and bonds and all sorts of things out there you can make investments in. But I'm not going to talk about any of the particulars. I'm simply going to give you some biblical principles in evaluating any kind of investment. Now, the first is that you need to invest with the right attitude and for the right reasons. First Timothy chapter 6. Actually, this is the passage you need to look at. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. He's talking, giving instruction to those who minister. He talks about those who are conceited and morbid and, and causing problems. And then in verse 6, here's what Paul tells Timothy. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Right? No, you hauls. Follow the hearse. You're, you're, you're going just you. Eight. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. They desire to make investments because their goal is to get rich and they end up shipwrecking their own faith. Their idea of success is wrong and they end up with all sorts of problems. Proper investment must begin with contentment. It must begin with contentment. Otherwise, it'll be pursued for some ungodly reasons such as greed, envy, pride, hedonism. In addition, you should only invest what is surplus and not what you need to live on. If you're not content, you already are spending beyond what you have means to live on and getting into debt. If you're not content, there is no surplus. Nothing to be able to invest. So contentment with what you have at present is the foundation for any kind of investment. You've got to learn to be content. Now, there are two proper reasons for investment. The first one is to create additional wealth for God's work. In Acts 4.34, and we looked at this some months ago, remember the people were selling off real estate, taking the proceeds and helping those who had need. They had made investments a long time before and were now using the proceeds when a need had arisen for godly purposes. And so it is a proper thing to do. Investing to serve God better requires that first you give to meet the current needs God placed in your heart, then invest additional funds in order for an increase for future needs. So that's one reason for investment. A second is to make sure that family responsibilities are taken care of. First Timothy 5.8 tells us that a man that does not provide for his family is worse than an infidel, worse than an unbeliever. You need to be able to take care of your family. And for that, you may need to be making investments for long term when you may not be able to work. Right? Proverbs 13.22 says a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. 
He can't do that unless he's made investments that are going to return a dividend so he has something to give to his grandchildren. So he's lived beyond his, what he's uh, had in order to make investments that give a return, and he leaves inheritance for his children and his grandchildren. That's what the wise man does. He provides for his family. It also requires that a plan of action be taken for any future profits before they come in. Otherwise, as soon as they come in, it's amazing how many people will find any excuse to spend it on who knows what. You know, you can rationalize about anything. Do you really know why you're investing and what the purpose is? Next principle. Do not presume upon the future. Uh, now, people who want you to invest with them will try and get you to do that. And they're going to show you these nice return charts to try and make you think that this is the way it's always going to be. But it's not. Any investment can turn sour. Maybe it'll go up. Maybe it won't. Do you know enough about to really make a wise decision? James chapter 4 gives warning on this very issue. Uh, James chapter 4, starting in verse 13, it says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we go to such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, and make a profit. They're presuming. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Don't presume on the future. Certainly plan, strive, but don't presume on it. No matter how well you plan, things can change, and only the Lord knows the future. And we've got to keep eternity in mind because as James says here and Jesus warns in Luke 12, you don't know if your life's going to be required of you tonight. And it could. And what then of your investments? Do your investments reflect godliness? Over the years, I've tried to put different amounts and in different investments. One of them I have is for the kids' uh, college education. I got an inheritance from my, my uncle. So part of that went into investments for the kids. And that's going down, I think that's nine years. And it was $2,500 for each of the kids. You know what I invested in it? Just when market went. Nine years later, I'm still $500 shy of making it to my original investment. And so I was assured that this was a safe investment. Low risk. Hmm, I should have put it in one of the other ones that was high risk. It at least has got a profit in it from what I initially invested you don't know, and no one can assure you. Don't invest what you can't actually risk. Don't presume upon the future. Next, hasty speculation and decisions. Avoid them. A simple rule of thumb is if you are pressured to make an immediate decision, it's probably not a good investment. Period. If they are trying to rush you that you have to do it now, back off. Don't make it. Proverbs 20, 28 tells us the faithful man will abound with blessing, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. Proverbs 28, 22 adds this, a man with an evil eye hastens after wealth and does not know that want will come upon him. Hasty investments are not good. Next, avoid even the parents of deceit. Proverbs 13.11 states, Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. And 1 Thessalonians 5.22 commands us abstain from all appearance of evil. Be careful what kind of investment 
What does it say about you that you were investing in to begin with? Another one, and people actually do do this. In fact, in my studies of history, I understand that part of the problem of the stock market fall was people were borrowing to invest. They took money they didn't have from somebody else to invest, think they're going to get a profit and pay this person back and have the proceeds. Proverbs 22, 26, and 27 warns, Do not become among those who give pledges, among those who become sureties for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should you take, uh, he take your bed from under you? 22.7 adds, The rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes a lender's slave. If the investment fails, you are stuck for the total amount of the debt. Surety is making a promise to go into debt and you don't have a means by which to repay it. And that's the difference between a good debt, which can be repaid immediately if it's called, and a bad debt, which can't. That's why mortgages are safer debt than consumer debt. If you have to sell the house, you can sell the house and pay off your loan unless the market drops, in which case you're stuck, right? We don't become surety. F, carefully evaluate the risk of investment. And this involves several elements. First, invest again, only surplus, risk only what you can afford to lose. Otherwise, you will end up in a position of having to borrow to live. Invest only surplus. Second, don't invest in what you do not understand. That's why people get in trouble. They're relying on somebody else, hoping that they know what they're talking about, but don't invest in what you don't understand. David actually expressed himself on this idea in Psalm 131. Verse 1, saying, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters, and here's the phrase, or in things too difficult for me. Be humble enough to say, you know, I don't understand what you're talking about. I don't think that's a good thing. This is borne out by a fact. Small investors that do best in the stock market are those who invest in companies that they personally know about and in products that they are also familiar. They invest in what they know rather than in who knows what? They traditionally have always done the best in the stock market. Next, be in unity with your spouse. Remember, we talked about this before you go into debt. Well, the same thing with investments. Be in unity with your spouse. Again, it's a reason that you've got a helpmate. It's a reason the two of you are together. Your first counselor. If they're uncomfortable, find out why. Work through that before you do something that may end up being foolish. And if uh, you say your spouse never agrees with you, well, you have a different problem. And you may need to come in and we will have a long talk about your marriage and how to get it the way God wants it, if you can never agree about anything. Get that straightened out before investing. Next, last point on investment principles. Give to the Lord from your profits, Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. We've already read this, but I'll read it again. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Is he really first in your mind? Or is this all about getting rich for yourself? And so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. In short, we've got to keep our financial priorities in order. There are three areas of financial obligation. These are things that we must pay. Okay? The first is giving, based on what Proverbs 9 says. That should be first in your heart. From the first of your produce, is God the first thing on your heart, the first thing on your mind? That's an obligation. Second is taxes. We've talked about that, Romans 13, 7. Christians pay their taxes. That's an obligation. We can't get out of that one. Next is debt retirement, because it's the wicked that do not repay. So these are three things that we must do. We must repay these things. 
Okay? Now, there are two areas of financial discretion. On these areas, you can decide what you want to spend, however you want to spend it. This is complete discretion here, okay? The first is your living expenses. You get to decide how you want to live. But you have to live within your means so that the first three are taken care of, right? But you decide what level of living you want. And the second is the accumulation of wealth. Both of those things are discretionary. The problem is that most people have these backwards. Living expenses is usually first on their list. Taxes are usually second only because they're forced to and they don't want to go to jail. Third, because their living expenses are way beyond their actual income, they end up with debt retirement. Accumulation of wealth is a good thing, so they strive for that and giving is last. Opposite of what the biblical priorities are. Wrong priorities lead to wrong conclusions. Here's the last principle. Guaranteed financial success. All right? I will personally guarantee anybody who will follow these three principles will be successful financially. If you follow these three principles and you are not successful financially, I will personally pay whatever it is you need to have paid. Okay? Just remember, you can't get blood out of a turnip. <laughs> First principle, God owns it all and you are his steward. Remember that one? You're going to give an account to him. If that is in your mindset, your whole manner of spending changes. Because it's no longer about you, it's about how am I going to serve God? How am I going to use what he's entrusted me for his glory? That's the first principle. Second principle, money is simply a resource to accomplish your other goals and obligations. So the question is, is how do you define success? And are you actually using your resources towards gaining true success? That certainly changes all sorts of things around. And this is how you beat the marketing people. This is how you can walk in the mall and nothing's of interest. Isn't that an amazing thing? See, I know I've married the most godly woman in the world because she hates the mall. I can walk in there and she wants to get out as fast as possible. Amen. Her goals are completely different than a lot of people. Because you walk to the mall, everything is designed to entice you to buy something you don't really want. Because you know you don't want it because as soon as you get it home, so what? It's good for a few minutes and then even the next day, eh, so what? That was stupid to buy that. All right? True success again. Loving God. Becoming like Jesus Christ, serving God and others. Increasing your net worth is the prior of the world, not of Christians. Now, here's the third one and why I'm so confident. Spend less than you earn and do that for a long time and you will be financially successful. Okay? Again, Proverbs 13, 11. But the one who gathers by labor, little by little, increases it. If you will spend less than you earn and you do that for a long time, you will have financial success you will have a return by which you can give an inheritance to your children's children. You see, the Bible says a whole lot about finances. But it doesn't say a whole lot about trying to make you obligated to, to give to things you don't want to give. Remember, I've said that before. God is so concerned about how you give and your motivation for it that he wants you to give cheerfully. Specifically, not grudgingly, not necessity. And that's why I've said before if you cannot give with a proper motivation, then do not give. Don't do it. 
because you're not honoring the Lord with that. Get your heart right first. This is an area of really your personal worship of him. That's really what it's about. God knows how to meet the needs. I have absolute confidence he's going to meet the needs we have. It may not be the wants. He may change all sorts of things around. But I have no doubt he will guide us exactly where we need to go, even through circumstances such as this. The issue here isn't trying to increase our budget. The issue here really has to do with this, and this is why I agreed to preach the series. If you are not giving joyfully from the heart, you're shortchanging yourself in your worship of God. And that's our primary concern. Are you worshiping God the way he desires? Are you learning to walk with him and see his hand at work? And this is just simply one of those areas that allows you to demonstrate it. That's what it's all about. How much do you love God? How much do you trust him? Based on that, you make your decision and give. Let's pray. Father, again, we're very grateful that we can trust you completely for our future. And Father, I'm glad that you have allowed me to have not only mentors before me who have taught me some of these principles, but also allow me to, the time just to dig through your word and solidify these principles. Father, and so we can avoid the kinds of crass efforts that go on in so many churches trying to raise funds. Father, we don't have to be concerned about it. You've already told us what you're going to do. You've already made your promises. We seek first your kingdom, your righteousness. You'll meet our needs. And we're confident of that. But Father, we are seeking your will. And we know that a lot of times it is through your providence, through the circumstances, you guide us into something we had not been considering. And we know that's even a case for our church at present. But for, Father, more than anything else is the desire to see those who call upon your name, those who profess to be Christians, to learn, to grow, to walk with you in ways they haven't before. And in this area, too, and I know it's hesitant at first, but to have the joy of, of seeing you at work and trusting you when they don't see exactly how a need can be met. But they step forward seeking your righteousness, seeking your kingdom, and trust you to provide. Well, I just think back of so many different events that have been in my life and that for Diane and I, where we have seen you do just that. There was no means that was obvious, but we simply had to keep putting forth what we believe to be true and trusting you, and you'd meet these in so many wonderful ways, all to the praise of your name, and that is the desire. Father, to see you at work, that we might praise you to one another and even more importantly, to the world around us, that they may learn of you, walk with you, and also join in the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.